Jesus is indeed, as we just sang, the living word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the speaker. What do we find in Genesis chapter 1? And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And what does the apostle John say in John 1.1? In the beginning was the speaker, the second person of the triunity, came forward and spoke and spoke and spoke and restored this this situation and restored this situation and restored this situation and restored this situation and created a paradise. In the beginning was the word, the lagos, the speaker, and the lagos, the word was with God in a face-to-face relationship with God, and, and this is the Greek word order, God was the word is emphatic as it could possibly be stated in that language. And God was the word. It's the reverse of what we would expect or the Greek readers would have expected because it's done for emphasis. He is fully God. And the word became flesh and tented, tabernacled, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we see him coming forth before him was sent a herald. Before the king goes and checks out his domain, he sends a herald. And the herald goes to the local officials and says to the local officials, this is the year the king, the emperor, is going to examine your part of his kingdom, his empire. And so what are they going to do? They're going to run out there. They're going to get all the potholes filled in the road road he's going to travel. They're going to get all the bumps knocked off. They're going to make sure that road, all the the uncomfortable curves, they're going to make sure that road is as good as they can possibly make it. And as he examines everything else that he's going to examine about their they're part of the empire. They're part of the kingdom. They're going to make sure everything's set, everything's done right. This is the emperor's way of checking things out and getting, holding their feet to the fire. Okay, John the Baptist was the herald of the king. He has come to the Jewish people, and he has said, I am the fulfillment of what is stated in Isaiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the Messiah. I am not the prophet spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy. I am the one spoken of in Isaiah. Make straight the path of the Lord. And the power of the Holy Spirit makes straight the path of the Lord. Make his way a comfortable road. That's what the herald does. And that's what I, John the Baptist, am doing. And we see John the Baptist's testimony, and we see the testimony of those who are, have come to Jesus. Jesus comes out. He is baptized by John. John is testifying of him. And John's own disciples start to follow Jesus. The first two of the apostles called by Jesus started to follow Jesus, later named apostles, are Andrew and John. The very writer of this gospel was one, they were both, those two men were disciples of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist, as Jesus is walking by and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
They're, oh, okay, and they start following Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and says, where are you fellows going? Wherever you are, that's where we want to be. Come, join me. And so then we have the first miracle in Cana of Galilee where Jesus turns the water into wine. Seven miracles laid out in John chapters 1 through 11. John chapters 1 through 12 is the evangelistic part of this gospel. You look at the four gospels. Really, Matthew, Mark, and Luke called the synoptic gospels. They're more like instruction books you put in the hands of a new disciple. John's gospel is a deliberately evangelistic tool. John chapters 1 through 12 is all about the gospel repeated over and over and over and over. And here's, here are seven miracles, seven signs done by Jesus. Jesus did probably thousands of miracles. John picks just seven. Turning water into wine is the first. And we've seen that one. And then we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem in the Gospel of John chapter 2. And at the close of John chapter 2, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. He does it at the beginning of his, his public ministry and again three years later at the end of his public ministry. There are four Passovers, the one at the beginning, then number four at the very close, which is the time when Jesus will be crucified. At the same time, they're examining the Passover lambs in the temple. They're examining Jesus and find no fault in him. And then he goes to the cross and pays his penalty for us. But John chapter 2 has the episode where he cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry and performs incredible number of miracles. He's doing miracles. And it says at the close of John chapter 2, when his, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs the miracles which he did. But notice this. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man, okay, we've got a literary tie-in here. Very clearly, man, 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 man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And we saw Jesus, this very famous event, encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born, I don't think. You must be born, now Nicodemus takes it as I don't think in the sense of again, but it also can mean from above, Nicodemus takes it as again, and which is a misunderstanding. What? 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 Am I supposed to be called back in my mother's womb and be born again? How does that work? No. What? No, no, no. Anothen in the sense of above, you must be born of the water and the wind. That is the Holy Spirit. And last week, we went into the narrative. Actually, yeah, last week, <laughs> we went into the narrative from the Hebrew prophets 
from Isaiah. I will pour water on him who is thirsty. I will pour water on the dry ground. I will slake your thirst, and meaning I will give you the Holy Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit poured out on Israel as that event that will walk them as a nation into God's presence. And we also have from, from Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel, son of man, speak to the ruach, the wind, to come and fill these carcasses. And the Jewish people who have been bones brought together, and then the, the flesh coming out of the bones, but there's still this par- bunch of carcasses laying around. Speak to the ruach, the spirit, wind, breath, to come and fill them. And the spirit comes and fills them, and they stand up. And so both water and wind in the Hebrew prophets are used as an emblem of that mighty work of God of the Holy Spirit, whereby he walks us into, he gives us light and life, and shepherds us into the kingdom. You, Nicodemus, must be born from above. How can these things be? You're the rabbi of Israel and don't what I'm, know what I'm talking about? Yes, you do. And, of course, at, at this point, Nicodemus, Oh, yeah. And then Jesus goes on and explains the gospel deeply, clearly. And, of course, that most famous verse in the entire New Testament is found in this passage, John 3.16. Jesus still speaking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Transfer your trust from yourself from anything you've ever done, from any claim you could make that would grant you think might grant you a welcome with God, abandon that, abandon that, and transfer your trust solely to what I will do for you on the cross. And you will find that glad welcome that only I can provide to you. God so loved the world, us, those as unlike him as he could possibly be, that he gave his only begotten son, the heir of all things. That's what only begotten means. Gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, not experience the eternal hell of God, but have everlasting life, a welcome with God forever. Our biggest problem completely resolved. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Now, you have a devil sitting on your shoulder. And he's constantly telling you why you're worthless, why it can't possibly be true that God would welcome you. And he's a liar. We're told in Revelation 12 that, God, that Satan stands before the throne of God day and night, accusing the brethren. But he also stands on your shoulder, speaking to you, with what you think is your voice or God's voice. No, it's Lucifer. And you can rebuke him because Jesus paid it all. Jesus got it done. He who believes in him is not condemned. If he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All you have to do is transfer your trust from yourself to his reputation. That's why it says the name of, 
The name means, that's the claims, that's the reputation. His reputation is what? Savior, Redeemer. The oldest book in our Bible, the most famous verse in that book, Book of Job, 1925, I, before Abraham, I know that my Redeemer lives and will stand on the earth. And though after my flesh, worms destroy this body, still from within my own flesh, I will see God. That day is coming, and the pre-Abraham Job knew it. God had already promised it, and he's trusting in it. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Exactly what Paul says, what the Holy Spirit says in the book of Romans, men suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them. Don't let anybody tell you, I don't know God is holy. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them, every single human being. But men love darkness left to ourselves. We all love the darkness rather than the light because all the light does is condemn us. At the front end of coming to Christ, we find out we left to ourselves are condemned. Who wants that message? Nobody wants that message except that part B is, but there is a Redeemer. There's the one who can sweep away the condemnation. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I'm going to suggest something to you as far as your, in, your interpretation of the entire Gospel of John. The entire Gospel of John is an expression dealing with the two verses I just read to you. Everyone practicing evil hates the light. Do we find people in the Gospel of John and all the other Gospels rejecting Jesus, fighting against Jesus, betraying Jesus, crucifying Jesus? Yes, we find that... the. The majority of people in Jesus' own life experience rejected him, fought against him. They hated the light. They hated the fact that he was telling the truth about them. <clears throat> but those who loved the light were drawn to him. Now, why did they love the light, by the way? Because they had already responded to God. Nicodemus, as pointed out last week, Nicodemus shows up. He is a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus calls him the rabbi of Israel. Very, very, very well-known guy. And he comes to Jesus and says, you have to be from God or you could not be doing these miracles. He's responding to the lie. Why? Because he was a truth lover. He was a light lover. But... He's also a, my place in society lover. He's also, I do like my seat in the Sanhedrin. I do like my reputation. Jesus calls him the rabbi of Israel. That was his reputation. 
we're going to see Nicodemus, through this gospel, come to the light. It is going to be a three-year process. In the middle of this gospel, he's going to stand up in the Sanhedrin and try to defend Jesus against these false accusations. And he's going to get shouted down, and he will accept being shouted down. But he's also one of the two men who received the body of Jesus from the cross. He finally does take a public stand for Jesus. A man who is a, a, you could call an extreme contrast in a way to Nicodemus. Now, both of them came to the light. Is the fellow we're going to be focusing on today, John the Baptist. You talk about a guy who from before his birth was a truth seeker. What's the narrative about John the Baptist we draw from the Gospels? He was a miracle baby. He was a miracle baby. His father, Zacharias, this is in the Gospel of Luke, his father, Zacharias, was a priest. His father, Zacharias, is fulfilling his priestly responsibility. He's in Jerusalem, and I mean, they came maybe once a year, maybe once every couple, you know, there were a lot of Levites. There weren't that many responsibilities. So he's there, he's been sent by, God has got all the timing down perfectly, and he's there, and he draws the lot. Okay, I'm the guy that's going to go in at just to be, as the sun is coming up, I will go be the guy going into the temple, and I will be the one pouring out the incense on the live coals on the altar, and this cloud of incense will rise up before, and the people are outside praying, and that cloud of incense is an is a picture of the their the incense of their prayers rising into the presence of God, and He is there fulfilling that responsibility. And what happens? The an angel appears to him and says, "Zacharias, your prayer has been answered." What prayer is that? Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. His response, you know, folks, he's an old guy. He probably hadn't prayed that prayer for 10 years. He had given up long ago. And what did he say? Why do I say that? Because of what his response to the angel. An angel just told him his prayer has been heard. Even if he stopped praying, what's his Why should I believe that? An angel just spoke to you. Maybe that's evidence. Why should I believe that? And the angel, I think, is even surprised. <clears throat> okay, I'll give you some evidence. You won't be able to speak again until it's done. And he is mute for the next nine or ten months. He goes out, and he can't even talk to the people. And finally, the, he, he must have had a vision of some kind. He can't speak. He goes home. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and they're expecting. He still can't speak. He still can't speak. And then six months later, the same angel, Gabriel, shows up and speaks to Mary and says, you are going to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And 
oh, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth is now in her sixth month. And that was a miracle. And so what does Mary do? She goes to visit her cousin. She travels some distance, goes to visit her cousin. And as she comes in the house, the now newly pregnant Mary and the six-month-with child Elizabeth, and Elizabeth shouts at Mary, the mother of my Lord has come. And Mary's like, how do you do that? The babe leaps in my womb for joy as soon as the, your, the sound of your voice hit my ears. He leaped in my womb for joy. And it says in Luke's gospel that he, John, was filled with the Holy Spirit from inside of his mother's womb. Before he was born, he's ushered into the kingdom and given kingdom power in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the narrative of the time of his birth, and finally, Zacharias is given words. He's given the ability to speak, and we have that entire narrative. How did Luke get all that? Because he sat down with Mary and heard it all. That's how. But what we don't know about John, his parents were older. It says that from an early age, he was out in the wilderness being raised. We don't know how long his parents lived and what they were able to communicate to him because when he was the herald for Messiah, he didn't know who Messiah was until Jesus came. And God gave, but he, would tr he loved the light. He loved the truth. He was always charging hard, even from before his birth. He is responding positively to the truth. And he, so he is a truth, a light seeker, a light lover. And when Jesus comes, <coughs> before he even baptizes Jesus, he knows who he is. God gave him a revelation. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. You need to be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, you need to bapt let, let's fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus' way of taking a public stand with John's testimony. And, of course, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know the narrative. As Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he comes up out of the water, John the Baptist witnessed this. God the Holy Spirit descent, de descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove and God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And John is later voicing that. He's, how do we know it? Because John the Apostle heard of that from the lips of John the Baptist. Remember, he was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. And he followed Jesus when John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why am I going into this narrative? Because the balance of John chapter 3 is about John the Baptist. He is a person charging towards the light, charging toward the truth. And as we go through this entire section of John chapters 1 through 12, we're going to see light chargers and light fighters. We're going to see both, and it's going to be shocking instances. 
preview of coming attractions. The man who was born blind that we're going to see, that's the sixth of the seven signs. And he is simply going to follow the logic. He's going to get himself kicked out of the synagogue by simply following the logic of, you know, this guy did for me something only God could do. You know, I really think he's the Messiah. And he gets himself kicked out of the, out of the synagogue. But there's this other fellow who had been infirm for 38 years. He's at the pool of Bethesda. He's in the temple compound. And this whole area is filled with people who have infirmities. There are all kinds of things. They need a miracle. And every so often, an angel comes down and disturbs the water in that pool. And whoever can get into that water first gets healed. And it says this man has been infirm for 38 years. And Jesus is there at the temple, and he walks up to this man, and he asks him a yes-no question. Would you like to be healed? Yes or no? He doesn't answer yes or no. Well, every time the water gets disturbed, somebody beats me to the pool, and I just can't get it done. And Jesus says, you're healed. Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And then disappears. And the man is suddenly healed. And he picks up his cot, rolls it up, he's walking, but it's a Sabbath. And the Jewish leadership will say to him, you're doing work on the Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath. Well, the man who healed me told me to do this. Who was that? I don't know. I don't know. He just did it. Notice the Jewish leadership aren't interested in the fact that a miracle happened. They're only interested in the fact that the law got broken. Jesus' favorite law to break was the Sabbath law. <laughs> they, aren't, they don't care that a miracle just happened. And this man doesn't even know who did this. He hadn't expressed any faith. It was a sovereign act of God. And the next day when Jesus seeks him out in the temple and he says to him, you're healed. Don't sin lest a worse thing come upon you. And what does the man do? He goes to the temple leadership and turns Jesus in. And it says, and they sought to kill him, Jesus, because he Here's a man who has experienced a miracle from God. And what is his response? First opportunity is betray the man who healed him. What do we find in the balance of John 3? We find a truth seeker by the name of John the Baptist. But through this gospel, we see variations of that. All the way to chapters 1 through 12, we see variations of people running away from, stiff from the truth, stiff-arming the truth, to seeking the truth slowly, seeking the truth quickly. This is a guy, John the Baptist, who, was, who heard the truth when he was in the sixth month of his mother's pregnancy and was filled with the Holy Spirit from within his mother's womb. And it says this, 
Verse 21, he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. They left Jerusalem, came into the outskirts area, land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, we're going to find out in chapter 4, verses 1 and through, Jesus didn't baptize anybody, only his disciples did. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. This is very, very close to the Jordan River, just barely on the west side of the Jordan River because there was much water there. And they came, people came, and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification which is what baptism is a cleansing ritual. It was done by people who had either authentically come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were Gentiles, or lepers who had been cleansed. There's all kinds of things that they used this cleansing ritual. They had what was called a mikvah. It was a, uh, like we have a baptistry in some churches. It looked just like that. Steps down into, and it had to have, fresh, clean water in it, and or you could use a river, a place of li- what they call living water, a river. Uh, but there was a baptism ritual, and that's what John was doing. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, about purification. And they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Apparently, in this debate that went on between John's disciples and the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders were saying, hardy, har, har, that guy that that John baptized is actually baptizing more people than John. Ha, ha, ha. And John's disciples come to him and say, hey, and they they point this out. And so John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. I'm good with this. I'm good with this. By the way, interestingly, in John 19, 11, Jesus will say this to Pilate, to Pontius Pilate, who says to him, Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? or to release you, and Jesus will say to Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Folks, even the power that the wicked have is given to them by God to fulfill his, God's purposes. They got to hate God. (laughs) Lucifer, Lucifer, the only power you've got is the the power God permits you to have, and you're going to play right into his hands. (coughs) And we know from prophetic scripture that's exactly what happened. Nobody can lay a finger on you without divine permission. A man, John 
3.27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from, to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. That is my role. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. In the Jewish culture, and really the Gentile culture as well, I understand, when a guy was going to get married, his best friend would take on the role of putting the whole marriage process together. And a gigantic part of that marriage process was the big banquet that would take place. You've got the wedding, but then the thing everybody's really excited about is the party that follows. And the friend of the bridegroom is so, he is an authentic friend. And so when he says sees his best friend being blessed, it blesses him. He's blessed. And the the friend of the bridegroom would get the whole party set up, get everything started, and the last person to come to the big party would be the bridegroom. And they would have people out, and you know from Matthew 25, the, the ten virgins, their job was to be there with their lamps lit, and so when the bridegroom came, they could announce his coming. They could, that was a big part of the wedding. And the Friend of the bridegroom is delighted by the blessing that's coming on his best friend. It was not jealousy. John was not jealous. He is ecstatic that his role as being the herald of the Messiah is being fulfilled. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This is what I've been pointing at through my entire public ministry. I've been heralding the coming of the bridegroom. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. I'm delighted to see this, and my role is to back off. A herald doesn't keep standing at the side of the road or in the court of the person that, no, and shouting and shouting when the king's already arrived. No, his job is done. My job is coming to a conclusion. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. The Messiah is the one coming from above. What did it say in Isaiah 7:14? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. He is from above. He is God the Son become flesh. How often in the gospel accounts do you find it said of Jesus, and they worshiped him, and they worshiped him, and they worshiped him? Almost every time, you've got these lepers coming to Jesus saying, for example, in Matthew 8, Jesus just come down from the Sermon on the Mount. And a leper came to him, and his words were words of worship when he said, if you are... A, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. 
He is saying of Jesus, you can be an act that only God can do. It was understood that God cleanses lepers. And I love Jesus' response. He reached out his hand and did what you're not supposed to do, touched him. Did Jesus become defiled? No, the leper became cleansed. But it uses the expression, in saying this to Jesus, he was worshiping him. He's attributing to him a capacity that it was understood only God can do this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. That's me. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. He's giving you heavenly testimony. And no one receives his testimony, he who receives his testimony. The general response is reject. The general response, especially of the Jewish leadership, is to strip on what Jesus is saying, to deny it, no matter how much evidence Jesus presents. It doesn't matter. They are not interested in evidence. They're just not interested. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony. Oh, but the exceptions. John himself. John's disciples. And especially the ones who became disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus. We will see people respond. We're going to see in the next chapter one of the most shocking examples. The Samaritan woman at the well. Nobody, 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 nobody would have picked her. Except God. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Why? Because he's doing the very things the Hebrew prophets said he would do. He is the very person whom the Hebrew prophets said he would be. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit to him by measure. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And what will Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides, remains on him. The wrath, we're born with an expectation of being under the wrath of God. Because we're descendants of Adam and Eve. But 
God doesn't abide by those who trust in Jesus, that threat is completely removed by what he did. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you want to get out from under that threat? Very simple. Transfer your trust from your own works to the work of Christ. Now we're going to come to the Lord's table, which is what the Lord Jesus instituted for his people to carry out. Why? Because it is, it, it is that anchor that brings us back to square one. To the, this is the core message. This is the core message of what Jesus accomplished. So I'm going to invite Hunter and Javier to join me at the table. This is the price for that. I didn't want to. Matzah cracker, this unleavened bread, is the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Leaven in the Old Testament is used as a picture of sin. The yeast in the bread was a picture of sin. And so this is unleavened bread. And this is my body, Jesus says. He is the sinless one. This is my body broken for you. And then he will hold the cup out to the apostles and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it. And he will be initiating the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. I'm going to replace that covenant I made with you folks on Mount Sinai 600 years before Jesus' birth. I'm going to replace that covenant I made with you on Mount Sinai, which you broke, shattered in every conceivable way, and I'm going to replace it with a new covenant. I, the Lord, will, I will, I will, your sins and iniquities remember no more. Everything in that new covenant, God does. Our response is very simple. Yes, please. Thank you. I'm going to invite Hunter to lead us in a prayer of thanks for the broken body of our Lord.
to invite uh, we're going to pass the elements out to the people and um, ask that everyone retain the elements until we've all been served and then we will partake together Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thanks for the cup. 